All right, thank you guys so much for being here at uh, Northwest Community Church for our second week of the Explore God series. Just want to take a moment and just allow ourselves to think through the gravity of what's happening here in the Triangle area. As we've mentioned, there's 10,000 people or more, probably way more than that, that are gathered right now in over 50 different churches all in the Triangle area and talking about this same thing that we're talking about. In case you're just visiting with us or if you weren't here last week because you're still on spring break or something else that kept you away from our community here, this is our second week of the Explore God series as Matt mentioned. And this is a very specific series that we planned and designed with 50 other pastors with the heartbeat that says, man, there's so much that keeps our churches apart and separated. Why not do something together that we can leverage our different congregations, our different communities, and be talking about the same exact thing? Easter Sunday, we talked about Jesus and he rose from the dead and he's given us resurrection power and the power and victory over sin and death. And man, we just wanted to dive in with some saturation of this entire triangle region of churches and like-minded pastors that we are brothers and sisters. We're not enemies. We're on the same team. Amen to that? People believe in the gospel. You're not the competition. You are a part of my family. And there's so many other great churches in this region that are attempting to do the same exact thing that we're doing. And that's why we were excited to be on the front end of this and be a part of this message series. So we just want to allow our thoughts and our minds to go out to those people as well, those churches as well, as we're all diving into the same difficult topic this morning. Okay, so if you were here last week, you will remember, and if you weren't here, you need to listen to the podcast, but Matt Rice spoke on tackling two very difficult issues, one being how do we even know that God exists, and the other being how do we know that this book that we look at as our inspiration and as our measurement for truth, how do we know that this is actually real? And so he tackled both of those, and again, all of this is just scratching the surface for some of these topics, but hopefully the Lord will use it to ignite a curiosity and encourage you to go to exploregod.com, and uh, there's all kinds of videos, resources, discussion groups. We want to recognize here this morning that God is not afraid of our questions. Do you agree with that? I don't know if you grew up in a church like I did where you weren't really encouraged to ask questions. You were encouraged to sit there and be quiet and just take it in. God's not afraid of our questions. And this morning, we're going to be talking about perhaps just one minor, simple, small, little topic. And that's basically, why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? Just a minor question. Obviously, it's an incredibly difficult and heavy question one that has been a roadblock for perhaps billions of people. It's like, yeah, I want to believe in God. I want to believe that he's good. But take a look around. And where's the evidence? So how do we possibly come to the conclusion that God is there and he is alive and he is good and he's got a plan when what's in front of us can be so dismal and so disappointing? Well, if you're somebody who's not normally uh, in the rhythm of going to church and you're joining us, you're welcome. And I'm sure you've got that question. 
If you've been a mature believer in following after scripture and the Bible for 40 or 50 or 60 years, because we've got some of those people, a part of our body, I'm sure you're probably asking that question too. It spans over all of us. And that's why it's so important for us to come together and to discuss these things, even though they're difficult. There's, as a matter of fact, a whole entire branch of philosophy that's called theodicy. And basically, it's the study of wrestling with the existence of God along with the existence of evil at one time. A whole branch is dedicated to dealing with all of those sorts of questions. Epicurus is probably the most famous person that came up with this argument. This was in 300 B.C., Okay, so 2,300 years ago, roughly, 300 years before Jesus even came on the scene, and Epicurus penned and posed this question that undoubtedly had been asked many, many times for centuries before, but it essentially goes something like this. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, yet evil exists, therefore, he may be powerful, but he's not loving, or he may be loving but he's not all-powerful. All three of these statements cannot be true simultaneously. God's all-powerful, God's all-loving, evil exists. Just can't mesh that in my mind. And you're not the first one. So what we want to talk about here this morning is we want to dive into this whole world because it really does make sense to wrestle with this question, right? All we need to do is take a simple look around. In the hour that you're going to be here, there's going to be thousands of people that die from traffic accidents and cancer in the United States. Just in the one hour that you're here. Around the course of the world, in one hour, there are hundreds of thousands that learn that their spouse or their parents or their children have died. All that's happening is the world turns constantly. Nobody is immune from the sting and the pain of human suffering. It doesn't stop. Suffering and evil are a part of this broken world. So in this Explore God series, week two, we're going to tackle this difficult topic head on. I'm certainly not a philosopher, but we're going to be talking about some arguments from philosophy. We're certainly going to be talking about theology, and our hope is that the Lord will will reveal to us some things that we can grab a hold of and, and some concepts and some thoughts that will stick with us as we dive into this. I really want to stress something this morning, and honestly, I wrestled with this all week long. I barely slept at all last night, to be honest with you, because I was picturing this moment when we're standing up here in front of our body, many of you who I know well, some of you that I don't know, some people that I just met for the very first time this morning, but we don't know all of your stories, but the some stories that I do know, that you're right in the middle of suffering. You've been affected and infected by evil and brokenness in this world. And you're going through that right now. And the, and the biggest fear and the biggest danger when you try and enter into something like this is that no matter what we come up with, it's going to somehow seem trivial. And this is one of the reasons why so many people just despise church and even Christians, right? Because it's like... You don't really let the pain affect you. Maybe something horrible happens, but it's like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, you know what? God is so good, and God's sovereign, and he's in control, and he's going to use this for something great. And even though that may absolutely be true, it really comes across as trivial and trite. So I just want to recognize those things here this morning, and I want to recognize for those that are presently going through suffering right now as we speak, you need our love not our logic. 
You don't need some sermon that's got three simple points. You need our compassion. You need our presence. And we want to be that for you. But my prayer is that in going over some of these concepts, even if we can separate ourselves and look globally and and try and understand uh, what God has revealed to us about why evil exists and why suffering happens, I'm going to pray even for you guys, even if now's not the time, that you can mentally take in some of these concepts, that the Lord will still use them in your heart. And again, for any of you that are just visiting and joining us for the first time, our prayer is that, that you would have an open mind for all of us, that we would have an open mind as we dive in to this here together. So the key question that we're asking ourselves this morning is how do we respond to the idea of evil and suffering in this world? We believe that, and I've kind of crafted the message into three very simple statements. It's ten words in all. Ten words. And the difficult task this week was to go through a wealth of information and resources and really try and mine out what do our people need to hear and whittle it down to something that can be spoken in 30 or 35 minutes and something that's memorable. And so I I hope and I trust that the Lord will honor that, but we kind of whittled it down just to 10 words, three simple phrases that hopefully will encapsulate incredibly deep truths that we're going to attempt to mine out this morning from from God's word. And the first one is this, how do we respond? Evil and suffering? Well, number one, we believe that choices include evil. We believe that choices include evil. And here's what I mean by that. In In the incredible story that we find in scripture, God created Adam and Eve. Even before Adam and Eve, God created the heavens and the earth and angelic beings and everything else. But what's really interesting about it is the reason that we have evil and brokenness and sorrow is because God gave humanity a choice. And that choice allowed for the possibility of a bad choice and spiraling downward into evil and destruction and more and more bad choices. And this is where we come philosophically to the point where we talk about the idea of, you know, well, why did God even give them a choice, right? Well, I don't know if you have ever done this before, but, you know, when you think about something that will always obey your command, at least if you command properly, when you think about a robot, here's the tiniest version of a robot that we have right here, right? This phone's going to do what I tell it to do. And I don't know if you've ever played this game where you grab your spouse's phone or your best friend's phone or whatever, and you go into the contacts and you change the name into something that you want for yourself, right? Like best friend or whatever, or anybody ever play those games, or is that just me? Okay, a few of you. Apparently that's just me. That's all right. But anyway, the point is, you know, you can, with commands, make a machine do something. And I remember I was with my kids six, eight months ago when we got the phone and we were just messing around in the car with all of our phones, like changing names, you know, as we're driving along because my friend Siri, who's a robot, she'll do what I tell her to do. And so I was like, all right, Siri, change my name to worst driver ever. Okay, from now on, you will be the worst driver ever, you know? And so we're just doing fun names and stupid names and whatever, and we're just having a lot of fun with this. Siri, what's my name? And, you know, goofing around. Well, I kind of forgot that I had done that, 
And months had gone, went by, and I was in the car with some other people, and I just said a very simple command, like, hey, can you give me directions to the nearest gas station? And Siri didn't understand me, but she repeated my name back that I had told her what my name was, the last one. Again, as we were goofing around, did I mention that? So anyway, here's what Siri said. Siri, what's my name? You're Jerry, but since we are friends, I get to call you Jerry the High and Mighty One to home one day all will take an Ian on her. So that was Jerry the High and Mighty One to whom one day all will take a knee and honor. I don't know if I was just, you know, we were talking about my Scottish and Irish roots and like I was thinking about maybe I was a king or like, you know, yeah, I'm the master and commander and that's it. It's a stupid illustration. But we understand the concept behind it. And that's that Siri doesn't have any love, feeling, respect for me. She's a robot. And in a very real way, when we think about this idea of God, if he did not give us that choice, if he didn't think that the risk of having people reject him, and instead he just said, you know, I'm going to take away all of that opportunity. I'm going to take away that choice. I'm going to make you into a robot. You will love me. That is not true love. So that choice involved risk and opportunity for evil, and that's where we land on this first three words. Choices include evil. Now, there's some pretty incredible arguments from Christian school of thought, even as it pertains to evil, because undoubtedly there are many around the world that would say, well, you know what? I'm not even going to believe in God because there's so much evil. Because of the fact that evil exists, I'm not even going to believe in God. Well, an incredible line of Christian thought and reasoning says, you know, actually the fact that evil exists and that you're cognizant of it and that it angers you when you see it proves that there is something good. Because without good, evil doesn't exist. You see that? Evil, by definition, is a lack of goodness. In the same way, cold, by definition, is a lack of heat. And darkness, by definition, is a lack of light. You can only get so dark, but you can, in essence, be infinitely filled with light because that's measured, and this is merely the absence of it. And for some who are around the world, they're like, no, you know what, the world's evil. Uh, God can't exist. It's like, no, actually, that's proving that there is some sort of moral code and moral standard and a moral law giver. Because you know what? Even if somebody were to walk in here and they were an atheist, okay? Which again, we welcome everybody and God's not afraid of questions. But think about this. For the atheist who believes that there is no God, there is no moral law, we are just a product of our environment and nature, why then is murder wrong? Murder is the law of nature. It happens all the time. Maybe you've seen it in your, in your backyard with your cat and a mouse. You've seen it in nature constantly. The strong eat the weak, and there's no moral law because of that. I can remember when I was extremely close up to this situation many years ago. I was along this bank, and I loved fishing, and I was all by myself, and I loved to tell this story about this giant muskie that I saw that was about three feet long, like a yard long. You know what a muskie is? It's like a freshwater barracuda. They've got ridiculous teeth, and they are incredible 
crazy awesome fish and I'm throwing every single lure in my whole entire tackle box right in front of this thing and it's just laughing at me. Nobody else is around. I'm walking along the brush, you know, and I like step on this one stick and it makes a loud noise and all of a sudden this tiny little furry duckling that had somehow gotten lost from his mother starts squealing and starts swimming out to the middle of this little canal and I'm like, oh no. And sure enough, this thing shoots right out. I've never seen anything like it. Right on the top water, just took this thing down and there was nothing left but little feathers. I just really lost some of you there, didn't I? Some of you are like, that's so horrible. I mean, is it so horrible or is that the way nature works? There's no funeral for the little duckling. That's the way that nature works. And without God, there's no reason that we are not at the very top of the chain with that same ideal. I'm strong. I should overcome the weak. There's no reason why not. We don't believe that. We, we believe that, that there is good and that there is evil. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian philosopher, this was his turning point of faith. We know that he's an incredible novelist and a great thinker and all of that sort of thing. But this was the thing that caused him to go from secular uh, humanistic thought into, you know what, God is real and Jesus is real. This whole idea. His turning point was this. It says, C.S. Lewis said he looked at the world and said it is so cruel and unjust. But then he said where did I even get this idea of cruel and unjust from? There must be more than just my own personal opinion. These certainly seem to be universal truths. And that was his turning point. The fact that God gave us a choice demands the opportunity that we're going to choose wrongly and evil will come. Those are the first three words. Number two, what's another concept, another phrase that can, we can unpack? Unforeseen good can arise. When we think about suffering, we think about evil, we need to recognize that, you know what? Unforeseen good can arise. God is a God of redemption. That's such a powerful word for us. And when we think about that, that means from the very beginning, starting in Genesis chapter 3, when mankind went his own way, God's mission was to redeem, the opportunity to redeem and invite humanity back into a relationship with him and to restore everything that was broken. He created the way for that and allowed us the opportunity to return to a relationship with him. He's a God of redemption. Now what's difficult is this very phrase, unforeseen good can arise, that's futuristic. And what's tough is when we're here right now, it's nearly impossible for us to even see what that would look like. There's some incredible stories in scripture about people that endured suffering, not knowing what the outcome was going to be. A familiar story that immediately comes to mind, which maybe even if you're not, didn't grow up in church, you've heard of Joseph, of course, who had the brothers who was betrayed, who left him in a pit to die, eventually sold him off for money. And here's Joseph, through little fault of his own, was now all alone by himself, away from his family. And he's trying to do the right thing, trying to be a man of character, was falsely accused, was thrown into prison. At any one of those frames of Joseph's life, that was suffering. 
Just imagine him looking up from the bottom of a pit, these people that, that were his flesh and blood, his brothers, spewing hatred upon him, leaving him for dead, selling him off to who knows where, to be a slave. Just imagine as he's tied up and, and as, as, the, as the carts are bringing him away, what's going through his mind. God, why did this happen? Being a man of character, working hard, serving God, falsely accused of the worst thing possible, thrown into prison again for years. As he's chained up, you can imagine it, that frame, if you just took that picture in his life, suffering for what? For why? For what possible reason? And we know how the story goes. As the years went on, Joseph saw the favor of the Lord, and he was, had the favor of the Lord when he was in the pit, and the favor of the Lord when he was in the prison. But it wasn't revealed until way later. And if you know the story, he was disguised. And he was finally revealed as the savior of Egypt. To, even to his own brothers offering forgiveness. In this incredible scene, finally, of revealing who he was and what God's plan was. And we come to that incredible verse in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, through tears, is offering forgiveness to his brothers. And he said this incredible phrase, As for you guys, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You talk about God's redemption, you talk about the guilt that they had, the bad decisions that they made, the malice and the anger and the violence that they had towards their own flesh and blood. And Joseph is saying, God redeemed it. God put it back together. It wasn't easy and I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I can see it now and I didn't see it then. Unforeseen good can arise. There's also this idea that we see so often in scripture about when the heat is turned up and when the enemy is nipping at our heels and when difficulty and suffering come that there's a purging and a cleansing and a revealing and a demonstration of God's character in us. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 and 7 it's written to a people that were suffering. And Peter says this, in this though you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering for us produces things that wouldn't be there if our life was the way we wanted it to be. Listen to what Tim Keller says. This God helpfully forces us to examine our assumptions. Is the highest good that we become comfortable and trouble-free or that we become spiritual and morally great? If our lives do not go as we planned, it's natural to question the wisdom of God. But our indignation is greatly magnified by an unexamined premise that God, if he exists, exists to make us happy as we define happiness. Isn't that incredible? Listen to this line. It is hard to imagine the development of virtues such as courage, humility, 
self-control and faithfulness without the idea of suffering. We don't know the mind of God. And we need to be okay with that. I came across this anecdote from 500 years ago in medieval Europe. The origins are largely unknown, but I thought it was really good for what we're talking about. Here's what, how it goes. There was a farmer who lost his horse, and his neighbor said, what bad luck. What do I know about good luck or bad luck, the farmer said. Several days later, the horse came back with 20 others in a band of wild horses and led them directly into his pen. The neighbor says, what good luck? And the man says, what do I know about good luck or bad luck? A week later, he was training one of the wild horses, and it kicked his son and broke his leg. What bad luck! The farmer responded with the same phrase. But then the very next day, a band of thugs came recruiting for their mandatory army. So they came looking for every able-bodied young man between the ages of 15 to 25 to recruit. And the man's son could not go because of his broken leg, and they went on to the next house. What good luck, the neighbor said. What do I know about good luck or bad luck? So why did any of these things happen? We won't know until we are standing in front of God and can see the entire picture of tragedy and redemption all at once, outside of time in the grand design, to see the heinous evil and the majesty of glory combined together once for all. The final three words that I just want to throw out as we continue to talk about these phrases is simply this promise. From Scripture, we believe that justice will come. That justice will come. It's hard to believe, right, when we see all the injustices and we see situations and circumstances. And on a personal note, I just want to share with you just a, a brief microcosm of a story. And it was several years ago that I came across the story of Davy and Amanda Blackburn. Loosely connected with this couple. We had some mutual friends. I knew the pastor at the church um, where, where Amanda was the daughter of the pastor. And this couple met and they got married. A burning desire in their heart for church planning. And you look at an incredible couple like this and you're like, these are like blue chip people. They're intelligent. They went to seminary. They've got their mission in front of them. They moved to downtown Indianapolis, Indiana, and they started a church just a couple of years ago. And in 2015, some incredibly devastating news came across my news feed that Davey had gone to work out like he does most mornings at 6 o'clock in the morning. And while he was gone, some thieves and some thugs and some monsters broke into her house. She was there alone. She was pregnant. And there was a 15-month-old son that was there as well 
And while her husband, this pastor, was undoubtedly listening to podcasts, listening to messages, working out, trying to engage in the community, uh, planning this church that happened to meet in a middle school, portable situation just like us, um, a, a church plan just like us. So while he was out, these guys came in and took the life of his wife and her unborn child in a brutal act of violence. He got back from working out, and he's standing in the driveway, taking a phone call for the next 45 minutes or an hour, counseling somebody, not even aware of what's happened, and he goes into his house and finds what he finds. The 15-month-old son was completely fine, but his wife, his lover, his best friend was gone. And I'm telling you, I don't know if these things Certain situations just really mess with you more than others, but this one in 2015 just really messed with me. It's like I couldn't stop reading the articles about it and, and following everything, even though I had never actually met them and it's 600 miles away, but, but there's just an affinity there because I'm like, I see similarities. The more I read about Amanda, she redid furniture and she was a decorator and kind of crafty and it like reminded me of my wife. I'm like, here's this guy wanting to make a difference for the Lord and preaching all the time and like, God's doing some things. Why, where would the justice be? Why did this happen? And I actually sat down and I wrote to him. And I just kind of never met him before, but like I couldn't get him off my heart and my mind. And every time I would leave my family, I would think about him, I would pray for him. I would follow the story and where does the justice come? What does it look like in the midst of tragedy? Well, justice comes in people seeing the beauty and the dedication in the heartbeat of Amanda. The night before, she, she wrote a journal entry and she quotes the song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things, all these other things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace just the night before. And then she writes out this entry again, like loving God, loving people, loving Jesus, loving church, even though it's difficult, even though they're set up and tear down, she's diving in. And she says, what an amazing Sunday yesterday. Truly filled my heart to see so many people in your church learning and growing and meeting you and taking the next steps. Thank you for letting me get to see all of this with my own eyes. I love you, Lord. Glory and praise to you. Justice comes when her heart and her testimony was now blown up in front of millions because of this platform of pain. You wouldn't wish that on anybody, but the fact is that was a platform. And now people from far off, people in other countries are seeing her testimony. Justice comes when her husband, Davy, weeks later as they caught the perpetrators, comes out with this news article that says, Today I am deciding to love and not to hate. Today I'm deciding to extend forgiveness, not bitterness. And so the city of Indianapolis and the country, and even around the world, is seeing this man respond kind of like Jesus did. 
And now here's the thing, you can say what you want about evil and God's perspective on evil, but one thing that you cannot say is that we serve an ambivalent God who is not involved and not engaged and doesn't care. Because of all the other religions in the world, it's Christianity that says, yes, our all-powerful creator God actually made himself into a human being and humbled himself into humanity and experienced suffering on the cross. And in the same way, he could have looked down to his perpetrators and he could have called down vengeance and death upon them. But instead, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As the Son of Man was lifted up, and as he was suffering, he was given an incredible platform that few could see coming. Later it was revealed that the cross was justice, and that our God took on evil and pain and suffering and and connected with us as human beings and demonstrated for us once and for all that there is hope even though we don't see it. So why is God waiting? Why is he waiting? Why does he just come now? Why doesn't the justice come now? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 gives us some insight. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we think about evil and suffering, we think about the fact that, Lord, he, yep, he's waiting. And Lord, why don't you come now? Why don't you come back? Why don't you make all things right like you promised you were going to? We know you will, but why don't you come now? The days are short, and we see it right here, and the Lord is wanting as many as possible to come to repentance. Two final scriptures I want to leave for you. One's from Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18 talk about this idea that we are children of God and if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him Paul says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us suffering's bad Somebody getting murdered is bad. War is bad. Losing someone you love is bad. But the promise is here that even though in this world you will have suffering, the promise is made that that will not even compare to the glories that we will experience later on in life. And you look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that incredible passage of all these saints of old who in this short life, they did suffer in their short existence in this broken world. They were made a spectacle of. But the writer says the world was not worthy of them. God used even tragedies to turn into triumphs. So I just have one final phrase here in a passage that I want us to be reminded of as our band comes out, what's our response to all of this? What is our response to all of this? Well, we don't know the why, but we do know the how. Together. How do we deal with suffering? How do we overcome evil? We don't know the why of why does it exist, but we do know the how, and that's together. Psalms 34, one through three, The psalmist says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. 
Listen to this part. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name. How? Together. The church exists for the world, but the church exists for us as well. And our role as the church is to be agents of change. We are the healers. We are the truth tellers. We can be the rescuers. And we are the ones that keep watch over each other when they don't have the strength to stand. So I would just say in closing that there are no words to describe the suffering that some have experienced here. How the evil has come and infected your story and marked your journey in a way that may never be justified or explained. And that's okay. And we want to let you know that we're not trying to be trivial with these ten words. We want to be there with you. We want to stand next to you in silence. And we want to keep watch over our brothers and sisters. But we want to point to a God that is above and a God that is close to the brokenhearted and a God who is strong. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you demonstrated once and for all that suffering, although painful, although unthinkable, is temporary. And God, you have overcome the grave. Father, we know that you stand with us in our suffering. We know that you weep with us in our brokenness. And we thank you for that, God. But Lord, we pray now that you would just allow us to make sense of this broken world. Help us to band together, to be these agents of change, to be the church that you desire for us to be. And God, we pray that all across the triangle with so many tens of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of stories of brokenness and hopelessness, Father, that you would reveal yourself, reveal your strength to us. We love you, Lord.